Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, would you give us your spirit today as we look to your word? that it might be illuminated to our hearts, that it might unveil your character to us, that we might see your glory. Lord, we need your spirit to do this work. We cannot do it in our own strength. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We had a kind of lengthy passage today. Uh, The second half of it, 19 through 30, we're not going to spend a lot of time on. It's really Paul's uh, intentions to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back to Philippi. But it is part of our background of what happened that Paul is writing this letter. And so we'll just spend a few moments talking about that. Remember what's going on here. Paul is in prison, and the church in Philippi has sent a financial gift to him through this man, Epaphroditus. And on the way to Rome to bring this gift to him, he fell ill and almost died. This is how we know all the details, because it's here, even though we talked about it in week one. And so Paul 
sees this man and he loves him and they seem to have this bond. Remember, Paul spent several years in Philippi starting this church, training these people up. Epaphroditus perhaps is even an elder in the church or a deacon, one who's doing this important ministry of supporting the apostle. So he's sending him back so that they won't be worried about him anymore. But beyond that, he's also hoping to send Timothy, his closest companion in the ministry, the one who is perhaps even there with him in Philippi, right? Paul's right-hand man. And so we have Paul in prison writing this letter. Perhaps they're the ones who brought it back to give it to the church. But we want to go back to the beginning of our passage today, verse 12. And the beginning of our passage starts with this word, therefore. If you've been around long enough, anytime you see the word therefore, I tell you to think, what is the therefore? Therefore. What is Paul referring to? What is therefore referring to? It's a continuation of a thought, a continuation of an argument or, or an exhortation. And so now we've had a week off as uh, Brennan was here last week. And so what was Paul just talking about? What was Paul just talking about that is the basis for which he's going to tell us now? If we look back in chapter 2, beginning verse 1, Paul was talking about not doing anything out of selfish ambition. He was talking about being united together in one mind. Remember, we talked a lot about church unity. But more than that, at the end of that passage, he talked about how Christ was humiliated, how being the Son of God became a man, not only becoming a man, was obedient, like a servant, and then died. And he didn't only die, he died a shameful death on a cross. But being humiliated, God exalted him. He who was humbled has been exalted to the highest place. And we ended that passage here in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because we belong to this Jesus who has been humiliated from the greatest place of honor, down to death on a cross, put into a tomb, and yet has been exalted to an even higher place, the one who is king, who is the Messiah, who is Lord, who is God himself. Everybody's knee will bow and tongue confess these things about him. And because that is true, and because they belong to him, therefore, therefore, my beloved, he cares so deeply about this church. Throughout this letter, Paul continues to show forth his specific relationship that's unique to the Philippians. No other letter is filled with more language of love and care from Paul except for Philippians. So his beloved, he is pleading with them as those whom he loves. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've been faithful in the past. You've obeyed what 
the Lord had for you. As Paul was there, he had seen them being faithful to the gospel. They had seen Christ and his humiliation and exaltation. They knew that belonging to him would cost them. And so he's exhorting them to continue to obey, even though he's not there, to be faithful. But he gives this phrase here that might cause us to pause. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul saying? Well, I can tell you that he is not saying, work to make sure that you're saved. Work your way to be good enough to be saved. Work to get all the sin out of your life so that you might be saved. He's not saying with the fear and trembling to just doubt whether or not you've been saved and just live in this fearful state where you might fall away from God. Now we know that our salvation is secure in God's work. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 tells us, Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is no question about God's work of salvation being unilateral. Or as theologians like to call, monergistic. One person acting. So what is Paul saying? And in fact, if God is the one who works our salvation... Why does Paul tell us to work out our salvation? It brings up the the tension we see oftentimes in Scripture of God's divine sovereignty and work in the world and man's responsibility. And we like to come up with ways that we reconcile these things together. But if you notice, even here in this passage, it's perhaps the most clear place, especially as we get to verse 13, he tells them to work out their salvation, but it is God who is at work. And he leaves the tension there as it is. They are not in contrast to one another. They are complementary, and yet our understanding of how God's work is happening in and through us as we'll see as he affects our will and our work, well, it is somewhat of a mystery. But I think what we have a problem in our moment of time, in our theological tradition, is when we see the word salvation, primarily what we think of is justification by faith alone. And that's not a bad answer. What is salvation? It's when you're justified, declared righteous. By faith in Christ, who is perfectly righteous, and he gives us his righteousness, right? But salvation is a much bigger box. Indeed, it's not less than justification by faith alone. But it includes so much more. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, uh, there are several places in, where you see we're saved, right? Justified and being saved. There's a reality of both and. There is the once-for-all declaration that when God intervenes in somebody's life, that when they place their trust in Christ, they are justified. They are accepted. There's no way in which God's work will be thwarted. 
And at the same time, we don't fully experience that until glory. And so there's this in-between time between justification and glorification. And in there, there are two things that are happening. Sanctification, and perhaps a subset of sanctification, that is becoming more holy, becoming more conformed into God's image, being able to obey like Paul is telling them here, but also perseverance. And so when we see the word salvation, working out our salvation, Paul is not trying to tell them to doubt their justification, to doubt their standing in the church, but that they might see the outworking, that they might intentionally engage in what it means to belong to this Savior. Salvation is an event, but it is also a process leading us to an ultimate event at the end of the age when we be saved from this wicked and perverse world and united fully with Christ, both body and soul. This is what Paul is exhorting them to do, to work out their, the implications of what it means to be justified, the implications of what it means to belong to Christ. And he says they ought to do it with fear and trembling. You think, well, why should they be full of fear and tremble? Once again, Paul's not telling them to just live a life of anxiety about whether or not they have salvation. But to see how tremendously precious of a gift they have. They've been entrusted with this great gift. Paul's telling them this is serious business. God is at work. You are the representation of his presence in Philippi. And as we look at this passage, a lot of times we like to read it as individuals. Indeed, there is an individual aspect. This must happen on the individual level. But he is speaking to the church and to elders and to deacons. They all ought to be working out Right? I wish we were Southerners. We'd understand this a little bit more. Work out y'all's salvation. There's a tendency that I know I have, which is to be passive. To assume no news is good news. Perhaps we have been told a version of Christianity that says, well, once you've said this prayer, once you've repented of your sin... You can just sit back, and God will do the rest of the work. Indeed, God is at work, especially in that moment, but also in the days beyond. But we are not merely passive observers. One uh, way this has been crystallized by the theologian John Owen, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is this reality in which if we are just going to sit back and be passive, it's not that we are even going to remain at the same level, but that we will be overcome. That the, the, the visions that we would see in the church in Philippi will be present. That we don't live in a neutral state. We live in a sinful world, and we all have sinful hearts. And if we are not actively engaged in the things that the scriptures call us to do, we can't expect growth. We can't expect success. 
Think about the different ways in which Scripture calls us to do things. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians. Put off the old man. Put on the new. Repent. Believe the gospel. These are all things that involve us actively participating. Oftentimes we talk about reading your Bible and praying, right? The easiest application for every sermon. Therefore, read your Bible and pray. Amen. One of the reasons that's such a popular thing to be said, popular place to send people to, is because it's something that we all don't do very well. Perhaps you're the exception. Why is it so hard to do these things? We often call them spiritual disciplines. Well, if it's called a discipline, it's probably because it's hard. You have to discipline your body to be able to do it. Ultimately, though, God's word, prayer, worship, fellowship with other believers, dying to our old self, repenting of our sins, these are antithetical to our selfish ambition, our sense of importance, our own strength. And so they cut at the very nature of our sin, and they're hard for us. Paul is calling them to fight diligently, to persevere, to obey. It's hard. I often think that I'm still 19 or 20 years old and could just go run a mile right now, seven minutes. But if I tried, I would be utterly embarrassed. <laughs> because I don't have any discipline. I'm not one who goes out and exercises. One who runs a marathon takes the time to incrementally grow into the place where they're able to endure for that amount of time. And so it is with obedience. So it is with the Christian life. So it is in our participation in God's work of sanctification. Think about Paul. We often think it would be great to be like Paul. He's always just full of joy. He sees the bright side of everything. You want to be like Paul? Experience the joy? See the depths of the gospel? This is a man who is in prison, who thinks he might die, and frankly thinks that might be a better thing than living, because his life has been so hard. He has suffered so much, been beaten so many times, been rejected by so many people. He's lived a disciplined life. He has seen God grow him through all of those hardships, and it has caused him to be full of joy. We often think happiness is rooted in our own self-fulfillment, getting what we want. But true happiness is being in the presence of God seeing him work in and through us. This idea of fear and trembling and the idea of this precious gift given to us, I think of the imagery of, I've been thinking about our, our wedding recently, and uh, 
right? In any wedding, you find your two cutest, you know, nephew and niece to be your flower girl and your ring bearer. And in our wedding, we did that. And, you know, they're six years old or five or whatever. And you give this little boy a ring on a pillow. And he knows it's important. His parents have been telling him all about it. He's wearing the fanciest clothes he's ever worn. He had to come the day before to practice at the church. Of course, he's probably shy because he's just a young lad. There's a lot of pressure. He feels the weight of how precious the thing is in his hand. That he's bringing it up to be delivered. And you can imagine his... Shaking hand, you know, as he walks up the aisle. Now, the wedding would go on whether or not he fell over or the ring fell off. We'd, we would figure it out. It wasn't up to him to make it there. But the fear and trembling here is not about living some life of fear. But it's about understanding how precious it is that God has entered into our lives. That Christ has done these things for us, for the church, for you. That he has put this deposit, the Holy Spirit, in your life. Nothing could be more significant. And in case you've come to this point and you're thinking, man, this is a downer. Verse 13 gives us all the grace, all the good news that we could ever hope for. As we work out our own salvation, as we are full of fear and trembling, awe and reverence, failing along the way, unsure how we would ever do this, right? Because my temptation when I see these kind of things is to think, well, I better try harder. I've tried harder a lot, and it doesn't work. It might work for a day, it might work for a month. But my own strength will not allow me to continue. But verse 13 tells us that it is not without hope. Because it is God who works in you. It is God who's at work. You want to know how to grow? Ask God to help you. Do you want to know how to pray? Pray for one second and ask God to help you pray. And then do it again, do it again. Have the discipline to continue to ask him because he is the one who is working in us. It tells us he's working in us in two ways. God is at work in two ways, both to will and to work. To will and to work. He is affecting our motivations, our heart, and the outworking of our motivations and our heart. All for his own good pleasure. It's the same language we hear uh, in Ezekiel 36, which we often use as our assurance of pardon. Right? The promise of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. How are you going to be able to walk in his statutes and obey his rules? He will give you his spirit to enable you. 
He will take your hard, sinful heart away and replace it with one that is tender. One that sees your sin. One that can seek after God. What a fearful and trembling thought to think the things we are doing is God working in and through us. If we believe these things to be true, it ought to change everything about how we view ourselves and our work. There is no room here for boasting. If you're the exception of the person who actually reads the Bible every day for 45 minutes, who has an in-depth Bible study, who prays for three hours in the morning before the sun even rises, well, praise God that he has done that work in you. Because if you did it in your own effort, it doesn't gain you anything. We are accepted into God's presence because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. And then he begins this work of bringing us closer and closer to him, changing our wills. The only way we can have a desire for those things is if God continues to grant them to us. And as he does, we participate in it. We don't just lay in our beds and somehow that's going to cause us to be full of prayer. But as his spirit is at work, causing us to think differently, to feel differently, to be motivated towards him, it will be for his pleasure, his glory. This is what Paul is calling the church to do. Now, what does it look like to obey? What does it he have in mind here? Verse 14 tells us he's concerned about fighting in the church. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do not argue. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's easy to fight, it's easy to get upset, it's easy to think you're right and the other person is wrong, especially in the church. It's probably what's already happening in Philippi. We see at the end of our letter there's this specific rebuke by Paul to these two people to get along. But why? Why shouldn't they fight? Why is that the center of his call to obedience? See, the church is going to reflect what it looks like to be the people of God, the children of God. The thing, they're these weird people in this little town that's pretending to be Rome. And they're going to be ostracized. Right? And we talked about how the only way they'll be able to continue on is through being united together with the same confession, with the same heart, with the same conviction. Paul's telling them to seek that God would give them the grace to be united here. 
that they would seem to be blameless and innocent. All of the bad, terrible things happening in their society, the things that uh, perhaps they're being mocked for not doing, the godless things, they are supposed to be straight in a crooked generation. They're supposed to shine like lights. It's an impossible task on our own, right? Blameless, innocent. Indeed, Paul is calling them to a task that only God can do. And indeed, that's what he's just told us. It is a God who is at work. So how will they do these things? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. Indeed, that's the word that's personified in Christ. Holding fast to him. What is it that we hold fast to most? What is it that drives the way we live and act? I think that's the heart of what Paul is getting at in this passage. If we are holding on to our own identity, our own security, our own whatever it is, that is driving our motivation, driving the way we do our things, how we plan our lives. And that thing is not Christ. And we will be divided. We will argue with one another. We will not be blameless. We will be just like the world. Paul is calling them to be reminded. Remember, he starts this whole passage, my beloved. Remember, it is God who is at work in you who has done this work in you. You have salvation. Work it out with trembling. This is serious. It's going to get hard for you. Living for Christ is going to be difficult. There's nobody right or wrong in your argument. You're probably both wrong. And even if one person seems more righteous than the other, that's only because God is the one who has brought them to that place. The church is to be united, to be rooted in their union with Christ as children of God, who have been declared innocent and blameless and without blemish. Their convictions must come from belonging to Christ, the word of life, Paul says, you must do this for the sake of the gospel. And he says this, to see how marvelously he loves this church, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now Paul's not just saying, just do this for me so that I'm not embarrassed. Look, you guys turn the wrong way. Like, God's not going to be very happy with me, right? No. What Paul is saying is, you are my crown. When we get into the new heavens and the new earth, I will stand and rejoice, knowing that God used me, the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners. Paul even goes on to say, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, drink offerings in the Old Testament were this benevolent offering over and above 
what would have been a required offering. And as the you know, bull or whatever is being offered is, is burning, you pour some wine on it to show extra gratitude, extra thankfulness, like a tip on top. That's how Paul is viewing his life. This sacrifice, this offering of faith. Paul gladly gives his life for the sake of this church, for the sake of the gospel. He's suffering in an unthinkable way. I mean, he's hopeful he's going to get back there. Right? He tells us that. He says, even if I'm poured out, even if I die, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Kind of hard words from Paul, but surrounded by exhortations and reminders of his love, of God's love for his people. Remember, it's going to get hard for them. This is a Roman province, little area, trying to be Rome. And Paul is in Roman prison for proclaiming Christ. He's calling them to do hard things. He's reminding them that he's given up everything for the same thing that they're going to have to give up everything. He says, don't waste my investment. Don't waste my sacrifice. Don't waste God's work in you, but strive forward. Obey the way that I've seen you obey. Put away your petty arguments. Remember who you are. Remember that you've been bought with a price. Remember that you are children of God now. Whether we live or die, whether Paul escapes from prison and is freed or dies there shackled next to that guard, he can be glad and rejoice because God is at work. There's no guarantee that this work that God is doing in us, this sanctification and this perseverance is going to be pleasant. In fact, it probably won't be. Putting to death that which is earthly in us is pretty strong language. It sounds painful, and it is. But the good news that God is glorified in and through it. He is the one who is working in it. Perhaps we are at a loss. We feel stuck. We feel lukewarm, backslidden, indifferent. Paul calls us the way he called this church to return. When he was there, he saw that they were faithful. He saw that they obeyed. He saw God's work in them. Go to God. Ask him to help you. You start reading the Bible and you get three words in and you start thinking about work. Ask God to help you. Ask those in the church to come alongside you. 
When you go to pray and your mind is beginning to wander, say, God, help me not to be wandering in my mind. Help me to focus. Find somebody to pray with. These are the ways in which God meets us. His Spirit is at work in us. If you want to see God at work, He's at work in our will and in our work. He is at work in His Word and through prayer and here in worship. He is at work in the fellowship of His church together. And I think what Paul is trying to warn them of is that God is at work in the midst of their suffering. We need to acknowledge it, to cling to it, to hold fast to the word of life. No other source is going to get us there. When we feel tired and beat up, let us go to Christ, who will see us through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word instructs us, that you've given us your spirit to make us into your children. And that you are at work changing our wills, working through our actions. Help us not to just be passive, but instead to receive, to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling, with awe, seeing how precious this gift is. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do it on our own. Give us this grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.